The Guardian. Welcome back to the Sydney Siege Inquest. It's Tuesday. Michael, let's just get straight into it. What did you learn today? Today was a, an eventful day, which was nice because the last few days haven't been, um, you know, so rich in terms of the news that they yield. Today, I think the big story was that um, five news organisations have banded together, which they, they do do sometimes, um, in this case to launch a bid to unmask the two DPP solicitors who handled um, two of Monis's bail hearings, one in October 2013, the other in November 2014. Now, these solicitors, their identities have been suppressed so far because there's a fear that they might be defamed, that, that you know, it might have repercussions for their work. Um, the news organisations, which include the ABC, Channel 9, Channel 7, um, you know, the Daily Telegraph, etc., have decided that basically the public interest uh, outweighs you know, whatever risk to the, the kind of reputation of these solicitors. Uh, and so they have pushed to have, uh, have them unmasked, have their identities revealed. We'll find out Wednesday morning, hopefully, whether that um, will eventuate. So that was, I thought, the big story today. The second one was that we heard from uh, an American expert in terrorism. His name was uh, Bruce Hoffman. And, you know, in contrast to a lot of opinion fr from Australian experts, Hoffman um, says that he has no doubt that the Sydney siege was a terrorist attack, that Monis was a terrorist, and he kind of laid out his reasons this morning. So before I let you move on from that, um, can you explain a little bit about how these five media organisations get together? I mean, it's pretty unusual for, for five kind of, uh, for, for those publications that are spread out on the political spectrum in Australia to get together on something, isn't it? Yeah, look, I suppose the, there is a sort of, obviously news publications fall on a political spectrum, most of them do anyway. Um, but in terms of, you know, the way journalists actually interact with each other, there's a lot of collegiality there. You know, we're all kind of in, in this thing for, you know, eight hours a day and, you know, it can be boring sometimes, it can be exciting, and this is a, a kind of roller coaster you're riding together. And so it's not unusual at all that we would uh, turn to each other and chat. And I think this came out of one of those chats. Someone said, well, hold on a second, this is kind of boring and frustrating that we, we have to refer to these solicitors as they, that uh, these people are supposed to be in a public inquest, and yet we're having to sort of suppress their identities. And I think, you know, journalists don't believe in much, but they believe in the public interest. They believe the information should be out there for the public to consider. And so this came out of a discussion along those lines. And the second point, uh, did you think there's a lot of credibility to what he was saying about the actions? Do they equate to a terrorist? So, so look, he uses, I mean, he, he's his criteria, right? He, he said that the reason why Monis was a terrorist was because uh, the siege had political aims and motivations. He said that it was premised on um, not personal grievances, but actually wider grievances that, um, you know, went beyond Monis. Um, he said the fact that, you know, by, by kind of Monis' own admission, he was doing it because it was, um, he was doing it on behalf of ISIS, he wanted an ISIS flag, um, and that his goal was to sort of reach a much wider audience than just the hostages in the cafe. You know, he was trying to speak with Tony Abbott. He um, infamously forced the hostages to uh, record, you know, videos, which he then posted on YouTube. So... For all these reasons, he's decided that actually this is a kind of classic textbook um, terrorist attack. And there was an attempt by uh, Jeremy Gormley, who's the counsel assisting the inquest, to try to test, test this guy's conviction. So he says, you know, hold on a second. We, we've seen evidence that Monis is a narcissist, that he has, that he's, you know, mentally pretty unhealthy. And, you know, does that change your view? And Hoffman says, not in the least. In fact, he says, here's the quote, in fact, I think it was immaterial 
a terrorist can be someone who has profound mental disorders. And he goes on to cite uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, who, you know, by all reports was mentally very ill, but no one's going, going to disagree that he's a terrorist. So look, I should sort of qualify that by saying um, he's sort of a rare voice among at least domestic terrorism experts, a lot of whom say um, that actually Monis's political motives were a kind of crutch for the, his, uh, you know, personal grievances. So the fact that he felt that he was, you know, he was kind of insufficiently esteemed in society, that he was this sort of great man who wasn't being recognised by the people around him, um, that, you know, he deserved to be famous and that this siege was his way, you know, however he justified it to himself, this siege was his way of kind of being the great man he always knew he was. I think it was interesting um, reading your blog because it's easy for us to go, well, you know, a, a man doesn't just stand up and say he's part of the club and he's instantly part of the club. But um, I think what the expert, what was his name? Hoffman, Hoffman Bruce Hoffman. Hoffman. What, one of the things he brought up was that the, the terrorist organisations do actually encourage lone wolf attacks. Particularly ISIS. So he says here's the ISIS, difference exactly. between Al-Qaeda and ISIS, is that Al-Qaeda was, uh, you know, they were very selective in who, the, who they recruited. So you had to be, you know, particular, you had to be kind of smart and battle-hardened and, and, you know, wily and able to actually pull off a kind of grand terrorist attack in the vein of, of 9-11 or the kind of, um, or the London bombing. You have to something. bring something to the table. Exactly, basically. exactly. ISIS, they're a kind of equal opportunity terrorist organisation <laughs> in that they're letting anybody in. I mean, <laughs> You know, you don't even have to be a member to commit a, ter- a, a terrorist attack on ISIS's behalf, as we found out with Monis. And so, you know, I think as far as defining this as a terrorist attack or not, the problem is that ISIS, I think, has um, lowered the bar to commit a terrorist attack so much that, you know, any, any sort of crazed person could go and punch somebody in the street and say, I did it for ISIS. And, you know, perhaps by this guy's definition, you know, it's violent, it had political motives, you've attached yourself to a terrorist organisation... That kind of, you know, crazed assault on the street could be classified as a terrorist attack. And I think that's part of the problem here, that, that ISIS has made it far too easy to kind of commit a terrorist attack. So what was the smaller story that um, perhaps uh, flew under the radar but was equally as important? Sure. So I think there were two small stories. One of them flew under the radar because of very extensive suppression orders, which made it very difficult to report. But we heard from a... Um, a forensic psychologist who's an expert in radicalization. And there's, there's so little of what she said that I'm able to report because of these suppression orders. But it, what she was saying was, was hugely interesting. And to kind of give you a taste of it, her conclusion was that, contrary to Bruce Hoffman, you know, actually Monis was, was not a terrorist. And she based that on um, you know, his history, but also evidence of how he, how he conducted himself inside the cafe that day. And she said you know, because of a range of these different behaviours he exhibited, in her view, he wasn't a terrorist. And we'll find out exactly what those behaviours are early next year when she's recalled for the third phase of this inquest. And then after she's done giving evidence, we can get access to this full report that she's done, which tries to decisively answer the question. That's a bit of a cliffhanger for everyone. Yeah, a very a cliffhanger with, you know, where sort of the resolution is kind of you know, almost a year away, unfortunately. Well, not a year, probably about half a year away. So that, that was one of the kind of little stories. The other one was this, um, the kind of continued attempts by this unnamed DPP solicitor, the one who handled Monis's December 2013 bail hearing, to kind of dig themselves out of a, out of a hole and, and, and sort of, um, you know, parry all of these attacks on their professionalism and on the way that they handled Monis's case. So, you know, one of the kind of key facts that's emerged is that the solicitor um, threw out a bunch of their files pertaining to the Monis matter. 
And they finally today got the chance to explain why they'd done that. And they said it was because um, basically, you know, they were spring cleaning. They had to sort of create some shelf space. And also that actually it's not unusual for DPP lawyers to throw files out, which to me seems kind of unusual because you think if you're, you know, work, A, working for the government and B, a lawyer working for the government, well, they're two pretty compelling reasons to keep a paper trail of everything you do. I, I find this really baffling. Are we to believe that they have physical files, paper files, that they're actually putting into the trash? Yes, and, and without there's no, no copies, there's no way of tracing. And in this case, it's particularly important because... What we're trying to understand is how much, you know, the police had all this evidence about why Monas shouldn't be given bail. But then the evidence that was given to the magistrate by this solicitor, you know, contained very little of that information. And so the question for us is, did this solicitor, was he told this information by the police? The police say yes, the solicitor says no. In the absence of his notes, we have no way of knowing what he was actually told, when he was told it, what he chose to ignore. And so it's really, it's really problematic. And, and you know, it's, it's, again, it's also surprising. I mean, who knew lawyers threw their notes out? So, Michael, who is the big winner of the day? I think the big winner of the day was, look, I'm going to say Bruce Hoffman, only because he, you know, we, he got his uh, CV read out in this inquest. And he's a pretty impressive dude. And he was appearing... Uh, via video links. He got to have his half hour and then not have to sit through any of the rest of it. He got to sort of (laughs) switch off and go back to his life in in Georgetown, Washington, DC. And who was the loser? I think, you know, I think the kind of... I think the loser was unfortunately the person who's emerged as the loser, you know, over the last three or four uh, days of of hearings. And again, it's this DPP solicitor who, uh, who had the chance to defend themselves. You know, for example, they said that... Um, you know, one of the things they were told was that Monas was a flight risk, but they, they never told that to the magistrate. And so they said, well, the reason I never said that to the magistrate was because um, the evidence I was given by the police, it wasn't particularly strong. So it was stuff like, for example, Monas was, uh, you know, the police told him that Monas had got his passport back and that he'd had a conversation with someone in Malaysia. And this was supposedly kind of ominous, that he's, he's going to use this passport, get to Malaysia and disappear. And the, the solicitor argued, and I think quite rightly, that you know, mere possession of a passport is not evidence of, of flight risk. And also, you know, it's not like the guy had bought a ticket to Malaysia. Like, he had made some vague plan to meet somebody in Malaysia. You know, there was no real hard and fast evidence that he was really a flight risk. So that was okay for him. But I think they also had to continue to take these lines of questioning from uh, Jeremy Gormley and the other, the other barristers in the room. And by the end, you know, this person's face, their demeanour, the way they, I mean, carried themselves was... You could tell they were crestfallen. I mean, they had really been kind of beaten around for kind of days and days. And it's, it's, it's honestly, it's quite difficult to watch. Well, it sounds like a really interesting day, Michael, but sad to announce something. Yes, sadly, today is the, the very last Sydney Sage podcast we'll be doing. I mean, for the, you know, as far as we know, we may pop up again if there's something particularly newsworthy that comes out of it. And by that, I mean with the next round of hearings, which is likely to happen early next year, and we'll probably feature the testimony of hostages, which, which I think is going to be something to look out for. But we do want people to tell us what they thought of the podcast so far. Exactly. This was a grand experiment for us. We're trying to figure out you know, whether we can sustain these sorts of daily podcasts for a really fascinating story like this one. In this case, we have had to wrap it up simply because we have finite resources, there are illnesses, there are other stories we need to get onto. But we've thoroughly enjoyed it, and we hope you have too. So leave us a comment by heading to Michael's blog on theguardian.com forward slash au or go to iTunes and search Sydney Siege where you'll find our podcast and leave a review. And thank you very much for listening.
more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio.